Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we tell the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we're going to talk about the movie The Imitation Game, a movie about Alan Turing and the work that was done at Bletchley Park to decode Nazi messages and win World War II. My guest for today's episode is Dawn. You know Dawn. She's been on other episodes. She's got great things to say. Well, she's my only guest today. It's new. It's a little weird, but I kind of liked it. And she requested that we talk about the imitation game as a way to write what she feels are wrongs that were done to Alan Turing. For a movie that intended to celebrate him and his achievements, the filmmaker sure got him wrong as a person. He was not humorless, he didn't have OCD, and he wasn't on the autism spectrum like they portray him. And he certainly was not a traitor, hiding the identity of a Soviet spy? I know the common response is, it's only a movie. But the fact is that there's a certain percentage of people who are going to come away from this film with the wrong impression of Alan Turing, because this is going to be the only place where they see anything about Alan Turing. The treatment of Alan Turing was Don's incentive for talking about the imitation game. And you can hear that she has some very strong reactions as we talk about how Turing's friend Joan Clark and his boss, Commander Denniston, were portrayed. Hopefully, we are able to salvage some sense of the people who did the incredible work at Bletchley Park, and I would like to think that we were able to provide you with some sense of what was lost by not portraying these people as they were in real life. The Imitation Game gets an 8 out of 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, an 89% fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and a 73% rating from Metacritic. The film was released in 2014, and it was written by Graham Moore, who won the film's only Oscar for the screenplay. He has few credits to his name, and this is the most high-profile project he has worked on. The movie was nominated for seven other Oscars, including nominations for Kiera Knightley and Benedict Cumberbatch. How is the imitation game as a movie? And how is it as a way to tell the story of Alan Turing and the work that was done at Bletchley Park? Let's find out as we talk about it. If you're ready, let's get started. And if not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. They fold. What are you doing to my headphones? Okay, let's do this. Let's do this. So we woke up in Chicago. We're here in San Diego to record. Yes. Hey, aren't we just cosmopolitan people? Well, we've certainly had a full day at any rate. We have. Yes. And, oh, we don't have to uh, be COVID distant for this discussion. No, it's just the two of us. Just the two of us from the same household. Ooh. And we can be within six feet of each other. And we are. Just barely, which means we can be uh, up at the table instead of having the the booms extended like we usually do with John. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and other guests. And you're on the big mic. 
I'm not used to looking at you across the desk and talking to you. I'm used to you being off to my right on microphone number three. What is it like? It's a little strange, to tell you the truth. Oh, good strange? Mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll Bad find... strange? I don't know. Let's get to the end of the episode. We'll find out. Okay. Okay. So why did you want to talk about Im Imitation Game? Because this is one you've wanted to do for most of 2020. And now I just finally got around to putting it together. And we're here to talk about it. But why did you have an interest in Alan Turing and World War II and Cyphers? There's a lot of reasons this movie interested me. I think it's really important to talk about the actual heroes of any given war. The people who had to make difficult day-to-day -day at the moment decisions that impacted people's lives, that hopefully saved more lives than it ended. Lequilessa said this once when I saw him speak, and I imagine he said it many times. And Lequilessa was? Was the leader of the Workers' Party in Communist Poland, back when we still had a Cold War going on. And he was talking about how he and... Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan, received tons of credit for the downfall of communism and the rise of the workers and the rise of capitalism. And, well, I mean, he obviously had more credit for the rise of workers than Ronald Reagan did. And he said, we don't really get credit. We get all the credit, but the people who did it were the people who were on the front lines every day. And those people get forgotten too often. We pick an icon, some person who represents everything that is happening. We romanticize them. We two-dimensionalize them. And we forget about the people who lived heartache and trauma and thrills and great successes that we were not allowed to know about at the time. The other reason I really wanted to do this was... There were just so many people involved, and more specifically than them deserving credit as the unsung heroes, the barriers they broke, the way that they approached life that did not get recognized, I felt was very important. The way women worked as spies and as ciphers and contributed mightily to what many considered winning the war for the Allies at a much more rapid pace than the governments otherwise could have made happen. And Alan Turing. This is a movie about the great achievements by a member of the LGBT community that were hidden for ostensibly security reasons because he was gay. And as you learned his true story, you realize that's not the case at all. And that's a lot to unpack at any time. This has always been an important issue for me, but I think especially this year, as we see members of the LGBTQ plus community finally starting to experience some kind of acceptance and be recognized for their achievements more than what they choose to wear or who they choose to love and having it recognized that we are all entitled to positive, healthy relationships and to express ourselves 
in the way we dress and present in whatever manner suits us without it being judged as a gender issue. It just seemed like really good, appropriate timing. Okay. And and we can talk about all of that. Um, But there were some really interesting things regarding Alan Turing and his his sexual orientation, which the movie didn't end up addressing. And and then I think, of course, we'll need to talk about how the movie did address Mm -hmm. his sexual orientation. Yes. Because I think it's in line with some other movies that we've talked about on the podcast before. Yes. So uh, let's go ahead and just start talking about it, because... For the movie itself, the year is 1951, and two police officers, knock and steal, have arrived at the home of Alan Turing after an apparent break-in. They decide to investigate Turing, and during the interrogation, Turing tells Nock about his time working at Bletchley Park during the Second World War. He tells of his time at boarding school and his friendship with Christopher Morcom, who introduced him to cryptography. Turing had romantic feelings for Christopher, who dies soon after from bovine tuberculosis. Now, just from a plot perspective in this film, this seems like way more information than the police investigator needs to know. Yes. Okay, but but the framing device for the film is he's telling the story to this police officer yes. who's investigating the break-in. Yes. In 1939, Britain declares war on Germany, and Turing travels to Bletchley Park. Commander Alistair Denniston is the director of operations at the campus, and Turing joins a cryptology team who are trying to analyze the Enigma machine. This is a machine that the Nazis are using to send coded messages during the war. Turing is difficult to work with and considers himself to be superior to his colleagues. He works alone to design a machine to decipher the Enigma messages. When Commander Denniston refuses to fund the building of the machine Turing designed, Turing writes to Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who puts Turing in charge of the team and funds the machine, which was a great fuck you moment in the film. It was a great moment in the film. It was lots of fun to watch. Yes, it was. How much of that was accurate? We will take a look. Turing then fires two members of the team and places a crossword puzzle in the newspapers to recruit replacements. Joanne Clark is one of the people who passes Turing's tests, but her parents will not allow her to work with male cryptographers. Turing arranges for her to live and work with the female clerks at Bletchley Park, and Clark helps Turing relate to his co-workers, who then start to respect him. Turing builds his machine and names it Christopher. But because the Germans reset the encryption settings every day, the machine cannot determine those settings quickly enough to decipher the messages. Denniston orders the machine to be destroyed because he's not seeing the progress that he wants on decoding the messages, and for Turing to be fired. The other cryptographers threaten to quit in response. Clark plans to leave based on her parents' wishes. Turing then proposes marriage to her to keep her working at Bletchley Park, and she accepts. So her parents' beef was that it was looking unseemly for her to be there? Uh, in the late 30s and the 40s, yes. Her parents were not on board with it. Mm-hmm. Turing proposes marriage, and she accepts. During their engagement reception, Turing confirms his homosexuality to his co-worker, Karen Cross, who warns him to keep it a secret. 
Also, while at the reception, Turing overhears a conversation from a female co-worker and realizes that he can set the machine to decipher words he already knows exist in certain messages. They realize that they cannot act on every decoded message, in particular, messages that convey an imminent threat to Allied forces. Turing finds out that Karen Cross is a Soviet spy. When he confronts him, Karen Cross argues that the Soviets are allies working for the same goals and then threatens to out Turing for being gay. Later, MI6 agent Stuart Menzies appears to threaten Clark, and Turing reveals that Karen Cross is a spy. Menzies says he was already aware of that and had planted messages Karen Cross leaked to the Soviets. Clark fears for her safety, and Turing tells Clark to leave Bletchley Park. He reveals to her that he is a homosexual. Clark says she had always suspected that, but insists that they could still be happy together. Turing tells her that he never cared for her, and only used her for her cryptography skills. Clark decides to stay at Bletchley Park, and refuses to leave at Turing's and her parents' insistence. After World War II ends, Menzies tells cryptographers that they need to destroy their work and that they will never be able to share with others what they have accomplished or see each other again. We're back in the 1950s and Turing is convicted of gross indecency, which was basically being gay in England in the 1950s. And in order to avoid a jail sentence, he opted for chemical castration so he could continue his work. Clark visits him at his home and sees that he has declined mentally and physically. After Clark leaves, Turing takes a last look at his latest machine in his apartment and turns off the light in the room. He walks off screen. The film ends with an epigraph that tells us that Turing committed suicide at the age of 41. In 2013, he was granted a royal pardon by Queen Elizabeth II, honoring his unprecedented achievements. So, Don, what are your thoughts on the film The Imitation Game? I think it's a fun movie to watch. It's fun to see someone who's really smart and knows how smart they are and insists on being able to do the job that they've actually been hired to do mm -hmm. without fetter and without interruption and with the adequate funding and other resources needed to actually execute the job and the time that it would take to do the kind of job that has been asked of him. The characters all seemed like they were there to represent types of people who would be involved in security, intelligence, espionage mm -hmm. during World War II, and to represent some of the cultural challenges that were faced when trying to get these sorts of jobs done. And there were definitely a few scenes that felt a little contrived mm -hmm. that were placed there. It seemed to give the sense of the emotional and mental toll it might take on a very small team who is looking to conduct this sort of cryptography, mm -hmm. knowing that Every time they don't forward something or someone does not act on something that they have successfully cracked, that people will die. And having to look at the long term in a way most of us never would have to. 
Yeah, every decision they made had life and death stakes to it. You're absolutely right. Rather than being representative of an individual person, each character in the film, to me, seemed to represent a trope in a certain way, and no more so than Turing. Uh, Turing was very much just portrayed as, you're going to be the closeted homosexual and there's going to be a price to pay, which is something that we've seen in other biopics on mm -hmm. how they've handled sexuality. Uh, first episode we ever did on this podcast, Bohemian Rhapsody, mm -hmm. received some criticism for treating Freddie Mercury exactly that way. The Human Rights Campaign, however, applauded the film for bringing Turing's achievements to a wider audience. And I think that's part of the challenge with films like this, is you, you do want to applaud that someone's accomplishments have finally been brought to light. Mm -hmm. Given the truths of Alan Turing, it is a remarkably offensive way to frame his life. And we'll be able to flesh that out a little more, but, but I think you're absolutely right on that because I, I think it's one thing to bring someone's achievements to light. I think it's another thing to bring them to light. And I think what the imitation game really fails to do is it fails to bring the, the wholeness of Alan Turing forward, which I think in, in a, in a way would be, more of a compliment towards his legacy than just his achievements. There are a number of huge inaccuracies historically in this film. British historian Alex von Tudzelman, which seems to be the which seems to be the name for a British historian. <laughs> I was about to say that. Well, he can't do anything else for a living after you get a name like that. He was named to be a, a historian, and he was writing for The Guardian in November of 2014 and pointed out many historical inaccuracies in the film and said in conclusion, historically, the imitation game is as much a garbled mess as a heap of unbroken code. <laughs> okay. Journalist Christian Carroll also found numerous historical inaccuracies, describing the film as constituting a bizarre departure from the historical record that changed Turing's rich life to be multiplex-friendly. So, Don, regarding the, the entertainment value of the movie The Imitation Game, yes. what would you get of it between one and five stars? I would absolutely give it a five. It is a fun watch. It's a good watch. It makes you feel good about Alan Turing. It gives you a sense of the enormousness and the enormity of the decisions they were making even when some of it felt a little contrived it just it it puts you in the cultural space necessary i think to understand some of the people involved and puts you in the emotional space of what it could be like to be the one making those kind of decisions when you are not someone who is a lifetime civil servant or a lifetime military enlistee or officer, that you are someone who has come in only out of duty to country and the introduction to the sorts of decisions that have to be made that you would not otherwise face and would not anticipate having not taken on a lifelong service role. For me, I'd have to give it a three. It just felt so formulaic on how it approached everything. Mm -hmm. 
that my bullshit detectors went off even without knowing the exact history of Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. It just rang false even before I knew the facts. Uh, I mean, I was waiting for a montage to take place. Okay, I'm bumping it down to a four. You're bumping it down to I'm a four? I'm bumping it down to a four. Okay. You're right. Those things did bother me. And the thing is, on first viewing, it did not. And I think that's part of thinking about how to, to rate the film. Mm -hmm. But the second and third time I viewed it for the podcast, some of it just felt gross to watch. Yeah. And for me, again, the big thing is how his sexuality is dealt with. And it's... Uh, I, I just had some big problems with the presentation of it. And we'll, we'll talk about how he was in real life. And I think that'll make it clear why I feel it deserves a three. Okay. Okay. Well, let's go on and talk about the facts. Because in this portion of the podcast, we will talk about how facts were presented in the film and the historical and factual accuracy of each item. At the end of our discussion, we will give the film a letter grade for truthfulness and accuracy of those historical elements. Let's get started. As we discuss the facts, I need to point out that the movie The Imitation Game is based on a biography titled Alan Turing, The Enigma by Andrew Hodges. Such a good read. You've read it? Yes. It's a good book? It's a good book. Really? Yes. And did you read it before or after the film? After the film. After. And that's part of what made me so angry about how he was portrayed. I was just going to ask you because... It infuriated me. I was enraged by the time I was done reading it. There is so much that is in the book that is changed for the movie. Quite a bit. So let's go ahead and talk about the subject himself, Alan Turing. And we'll talk about what was in the movie. Alan Turing is presented as a closeted gay man who is egotistical about his abilities. He is presented as having qualities and mannerisms that seem to place him on the autism spectrum. He doesn't have much of a sense of humor. He really doesn't have a an awareness of other people's feelings in a situation. And the imitation game shows that he single-handedly creates the machine that broke the German's Enigma code. Well, isn't he a superhero? Well, what really happened? Well, what really happened, the movie does show him at boarding school, and in real life, Turing was bullied and was nailed under the floorboards. But this is not how he met his fellow schoolmate, Christopher Markham. They bonded over math and chemistry, not ciphers. Turing did have romantic feelings for Morcom. However, Morcom did not reciprocate the feelings. Turing wrote, quote, Chris knew, I think, so well how I liked him, but hated me shooing it. H hated me shooing it? That's the quote. That's what he said. Hated Sh me shooing it. S-H-E-W-I-N-G. Ah, okay. Morcom died of bovine tuberculosis in 1930, and in the movie it's presented as if Turing is taken by surprise by the news. But it was known Morcom was sick. It was known what he had. And in the movie, when Turing is told of Morcom's death by the school's headmaster in the film, Turing denies having known Markham. But in real life, Turing was openly devastated by Markham's death and remained in close touch with his family. He went on vacations with them, and he kept in correspondence with Markham's mother for years following Christopher's death. Wow. 
that's something you do when you've had a close friend and you're also in with their family when you are part of their close circle. In Hodge's biography, Turing is shy, eccentric, and impatient with irrationality. Benedict Cumberbatch's portrayal of Turing is more in line with his portrayal of Sherlock Holmes than any real-world description of Alan Turing. Yes. Colleagues of Turing's at Bletchley Park describe Turing as very approachable with a great sense of humor and a person of whom they were very fond. And that's why I marked the film down for entertainment, because imagine if that person were portrayed on screen, which not only are we looking at his accomplishments, we're looking that he did it with humor and with a fondness from his colleagues. That, that would have been something to see. And I think that's more important for people to see. Mm-hmm. That someone who could have run roughshod over people did not. Yes. That he had kindness and compassion and humor. All, all characteristics that people say are important in leadership and instead the movie makes him out to be some odd duck genius who his colleagues kind of have to learn to like because of what he can achieve or learn to tolerate there is no evidence that turing suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder and had a need to separate his peas and carrots on the plate as they show in the film in fact He generally had a very unkempt appearance, which would suggest an argument against OCD. A key plot point of the film regarded Turing not liking sandwiches. Remember, there's that whole point? Yes. When I think it's Karen Cross is saying, we're going out for lunch. Yes. I'm asking you to go to lunch. No, you didn't ask me to go to lunch. Yeah. You asked if I'm hungry. Hodges never notes Turing's preference for sandwiches or not having sandwiches in his biography. In the film, Turing says he does not know the German language, but in real life he studied German, and he traveled to Germany before and after the war. Hmm. Much of the conflict at Bletchley Park comes in the form of Commander Alistair Denniston, as played by Charles Dance. In real life, Denniston recruited Turing based on his writings in computational machines in 1938. And that's referenced in the movie, isn't it? That Denniston hired him? No, the movie shows that Turing shows up for the interview. No, 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 no. It's his writing is referenced. His writing is referenced. Not that but it's referenced in a derisive way. It is, yes. Not, not that it was used as a screening tool to decide if he was appropriate for this. And not that Denniston was a fan of his in any way. No. No, Denniston most definitely was a fan of Turing's and hired him to work full-time at Bletchley Park in 1939. There is no record of the pair having a contentious relationship and there is no record that Denniston ever tried to fire Turing. With that said, this may be a case of presenting a conflict between Turing's approach to the work in the constraints of a military system. Colleagues say that Turing was, quote, always impatient of pompousness or officialdom of any kind. And Hodges writes that Turing, quote, had little time for Denniston. Turing and his colleagues wrote a letter to Winston Churchill to request more resources and staff in 1941, and Churchill quickly granted their request. 
He did not end up promoting Turing, though, and Turing did not end up firing people. That's a shitty thing to have in the movie, then. All, all of that. One of the things we like to do on this podcast is to find out what the real-world outcomes are when liberties are taken with a historical figure. In the case of the representation of Commander Denniston in The Imitation Game, Denniston's family took issue with the portrayal. Good for them. And his granddaughter, Judith Finch, said, quote, While the much-acclaimed film The Imitation Game rightly acknowledges Alan Turing's vital role in the war effort, it is sad that it does so by taking an unwarranted side swipe at Commander Alistair Denniston, portraying him as a hectoring character who merely hindered Turing's work. She continued to say, he, quote, is completely misrepresented. They needed a baddie, and they've put him in there without researching the truth about the contribution he made. That's super shitty. Mm-hmm. And I can't figure out if it says more about what Hollywood thinks of the intellectual capacity of its paying viewers or the importance it puts on a person's reputation versus its ability to make money. The idea that they have to have a goodie and a baddie, because this is consistent through many movies. Biopics in particular. When there are no baddies to be had, there's nuance, and they treat nuance like it is the enemy of all box offices. Would you like to hear how screenwriter Graham Moore responded to this feedback? Oh, do tell. He said that the film shows, quote, the natural conflict of people working extremely hard under unimaginable pressure. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Would you like to expand on that a little? These are the people who dedicated their lives to making sure that the Allies won the war. And that the Nazis did not take England, Great Britain at large, the United States, or other allied countries. And we are not currently under Nazi rule because of them. And of course, people have frustrations. But they don't manifest in overt hostility, which is how it was presented in the movie. Yeah. So so Shame on him. Fuck him. He should never make a movie again. So, so far in the film, we have uh, Deniston who was a fan of Turing and brought him into Bletchley Park, being turned into his nemesis. Mm-hmm. And then we have Turing himself, who was well-liked, got along with his colleagues, was approachable and had a sense of humor, being turned into this person who wasn't approachable, mm-hmm. who couldn't relate to people at all, and who had no sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Who had a nonsensical bizarre combination of what they try to present as a variety of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, again, does that link to his sexual orientation and how it's presented as well? Well, Okay. Let's get off of personalities for the moment. Okay. Don, take a deep breath, please. (sighs) Ah, thank Uh, you. And let's talk about the machine. Okay. So what was in the movie was the machine. Christopher. Named Christopher by Turing as a tribute to his first love is designed and built solely by Alan Turing at Bletchley Park. What really happened? The machine was originally designed by Polish mathematicians years earlier and was named the bomb. 
All right. The bomb spelled B-O-M-B-E because the bomb is referring to the electromechanical device that is that is turning. Okay. That's what a bomb is. Okay. The polls noticed that in each German-encoded message, Germans encoded the first three sets of letters twice. This allowed the Polish cryptographers to search for patterns. Once the Germans discovered the double encryption error, improvements needed to be made in the design in order to decode the Germans' messages. These improvements were made by Turing, with the collaboration of Gordon Welchman, a fellow mathematician who is not shown in the movie at all. Their design was essentially 36 Enigma machines linked together that work to eliminate the variables. It is way too complicated to talk about this on a podcast, especially without using charts, graphs, and some heavy mathematics. But they relied on using communications that were in the same format each day, which would have the same words used in each transmission. Now, they did not rely on messages from a flirtatious German soldier, as is shown in the movie. What they did use was the Atlantic Weather Report, because the Atlantic Weather Report had the same format that was used day in, day out. There were certain words in there, such as weather forecast, which were used in each report, and they could go ahead and figure out the coding based on that. Also, the machine didn't do the full job. All the machine did was limit the variables. After okay. that, you were left with about three to five different variables that could be in play for the coding mm -hmm. because the Enigma machine had three different dials on it. It was after the bomb had done its work that cryptographers would have to go and take a look at that information and then be able to narrow it down. But three to five is a lot less than, I think it was like 1.3 million million was the number of variables in play for a decoded message from the Enigma machine. So the bomb definitely did quite a bit of work. And if you'd like to see more about this, I did find a video of one of the women who ran the bomb machines at Bletchley Park during World War II. Yeah. She, is in, she shows you how the machine works, and she, she puts it through its paces. It's really interesting to watch, and she gives a lot of great information. Ah, that's so cool. And, and she is, like many of the women who I've seen in doing this research, even in her 80s, this is not a woman you would want to mess with. She just looks like a woman who will kick your ass if you cross her. They are bona fide badasses. Bon yep, they are. So if you want to see that video, you can find it on our website, biopixmostlysuck.com slash imitation game. So this new improved bomb machine, which was created by Turing and Gordon Welchman, was nicknamed Victory. It was never named Christopher. Uh. And those who knew Turing say it is highly unlikely he would be so sentimental to name a machine after a person. Who he had affection for when he was a kid. Yes, that, that was just something that wasn't in his nature. That's, that's not the type of thing he did. No, it's very schmaltzy. It is. It's interesting to note that the machine you see in the movie looks very much and works very similarly to the replicas of bomb machines that have been recreated. 
There's a big difference in the movie version and the real version, though, and that is the large amount of red wiring that you see going on the outside of the machine and crossing over the top. Mm -hmm. That was added by the production designers to give the impression of blood pumping through the machine. It only gave me the impression of these were older machines and they typically had larger workings than we see currently. It should be noted that in total, there were 200 bomb machines built, and they were each run by two women, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Wow. At the end of the war, these same women were given screwdrivers and were told to dismantle the machines. Man, that had to be rough. But what choice do you have? Yeah, I I mean, it's alluded to in the film, but the movie gives the impression that there was one machine that did the job. Yeah. And it was was all in Hut 8. Yes. Because they have the bonfire at the end, destroying all the information. No, it was far wider than that. There were people, there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people who worked on this effort to defeat the Nazis. And and decode their messages and the movie boils it down to eight hut eight hut eight (laughs) and and that's it the people who made this movie are terrible people let's go ahead and talk about joan clark all right and what was in the movie joan clark was brought to bletchley park by alan turing based on her completing a crossword puzzle and a subsequent test Her parents did not want her to be part of the program because she is a woman. What really happened? I personally think the depiction of Clark minimizes her accomplishments because Clark was not recruited by a crossword puzzle. She went to Cambridge and she earned a double first in mathematics, but she did not earn a degree. Do you want to guess why? They didn't let women earn those degrees at the time? Not until 1948. Of course, her... No, no, wait. So she earned two firsts. What's a first? Not sure. It's what you get in place of a degree. Something lesser. Something lesser, yeah. But but I I suppose it might be along the lines of a double major. A -hmm. double first. Mm -hmm. Major being synonymous with first. Okay. Of course, her academic accomplishments meant that she was placed in the clerical pool at Bletchley Park in 1939, and she was working there when Alan Turing arrived. A year later, she was recommended to the government program in Hut 8, led by Turing, by her academic supervisor at Cambridge. You want to guess who that person might have been? The same person who hired Turing? Denison? No, not Denison. Gordon Welchman, who was the man who was collaborating with Alan Turing on improving the design of the bomb machine. Oh, all right. This seems pretty progressive, considering the program was dominated by men in that regard. There were plenty of women who were doing work, clerical work, and later on working the bomb machines. Country over gender? But not doing the design portions. However... The crossword puzzle is an interesting thing because it was used by the British government kind of accidentally 
to recruit code breakers. Do tell. I love a good crossword. Okay. Let, let's take a bit of a detour and talk okay. about this. Because in 1942, the Daily Telegraph newspaper in London kept receiving letters with the complaint that the crossword puzzles were too easy and could be solved in minutes. A man, and this guy sounds like a character, a man by the name of W.A.J. Gavin. There's no first name involved, just three initials and a last name. Mm -hmm. W.A.J. Gavin, who was the chairman of the Eccentrics Club, which was a club of original thinkers, thought it might be fun to put these complaints to the test. So he put a notice in the Daily Telegraph and invited readers to the newsroom. If they could solve the puzzle in under 12 minutes, Gavin would make a 100-pound donation to charity. There's some accounts of the story that say the winner would get the money. Do you have what that is in real dollars? Uh, the calculation for today? Yes. Uh, I will do that. I will put it in the fact check. All right. And we'll, we'll see what it is. Because that's not chump change. That, that, no, in 1942, that, that was not a little bit of money. That was quite a bit going there. Well, a number of people came to the Daily Telegraph, and there were five people who actually solved the crossword puzzle. Oh, shit. He had to throw down for five people? In under, <laughs> in under 12 minutes. Oh. He actually had to throw down for four people. One, one of the people was disqualified for a misspelling. Oh, okay. But one of the winners, Stanley Sedgwick, relates what happened next. He said, Several weeks later, I received a letter marked confidential, inviting me as a consequence of taking part in the Daily Telegraph crossword time test to make an appointment to see Colonel Nichols of the general staff, who would very much like to see you on a matter of national importance. And did he think this was a joke when he got it? Because I would think that's a joke if I got something like that in the mail. Mr. Sedgwick took the appointment. He signed the National Secrecy Act. Wow. And he was then hired to work at Bletchley Park. Other people who took part in the competition were also hired in a similar fashion. Wow. Were they all given some sort of standard story to tell their family? That is not related at all in the accounts I've read. But but here's the thing. Turing had nothing to do with the crossword puzzle being used. Mm -hmm. But that movie is, I, I'm sorry, that story is amazing. Just, I mean, okay, imagine being the British government. You look in the Daily Telegraph and you say, oh, they're going to do a challenge for people to do a crossword puzzle. This would be a great opportunity to find cryptographers. Mm-hmm. But I get it. I love crosswords. I do the New York Times crossword puzzle all the time. And you have to have a good sense of double entendre of what multiple meanings can be behind a single clue, whether there are themes mm -hmm. or not, whether the theme is a cultural theme, whether it's just a theme of a pattern, whether it's a play on words mm -hmm. in and of itself, the theme. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. But, but I mean, 
uh, the British government just said, this is happening. This would be a great opportunity. Let's do it. And they got That's so smart. And they found five people to work at Bletchley Park out of it. That's great. How I wild love it. is that? And if you listening would like to find out if you could have worked at Bletchley Park, I do have the crossword puzzle available on our website as well. You can download a PDF of the puzzle and the questions and the answers at our website at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash imitation game. Word of warning, though, it is very British-centric. You read over it. I did read over it. I haven't had a time to try completing the crossword, but yes, it's very British-centric, which is a reminder that whether you're breaking codes or, to a lesser degree, crossword puzzles, you need to have some cultural context... Yep. To understand what those clues actually mean. So go challenge yourself. It should be fun. Heck yeah. But back to Joan Clark. Yes. Her parents never forbade her from joining the program. <sighs> Due to her gender or any other reason, which means Turing did not propose marriage to her to keep her in the program, which is what the movie shows. I would imagine that most people, once you're years deep into a war mm -hmm. and your son or daughter is asked to present themselves someplace to do quote unquote clerical work, you're just going to shut your mouth because you know yeah. that's not what they're doing yeah. and you're not going to ask them what they're doing yeah. and you're going to allow them to put country before anything else if that's what they are choosing to do. And in the movie, it shows that Turing proposed to Joan in order to keep her working at Bletchley Park, and that was not the case at all. Turing did propose marriage to Clark because they did have a mutual attraction to each other. They had dated and kissed and went to the cinema, but our modern notion of a couple having a proven sexual compatibility was not common during this time period. Mm, mm -hmm. During this time, marriage was still seen as a social duty. And according to Turing's biographer, Andrew Hodges, the day after Turing proposed and Clark accepted, he told her he had homosexual tendencies. She admits to being a little concerned, but they knitted together. And they solved math problems together. Turing changed Aww. their schedules so they could work together. Aww. And they talked about starting a family. He confided in her and he enjoyed talking to her, as he said, as to a man. What makes a better partnership for life than that? Turing could be himself around her. You can't ask for more. After a week-long holiday in Wales, he decided to end the relationship. Oh. And he used a poem, part of a poem, The Ballad of Gale by Oscar Wilde. Oh, okay. Which is interesting to note, Oscar Wilde was also pardoned at the same time Alan Turing was by Queen Elizabeth. Huh. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the lines he chose to break up with Joan. By Oscar Wilde, The Ballad of Gale. He chose the portion, yet each man kills the thing he loves. Mm. By each let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. Some kill their love when they are young, 
and some when they are old. Some strangle with the hands of lust, some with the hands of gold. The kindest use a knife, because the dead so soon grow cold. Some love too little, some too long, some sell and others buy. Some do the deed with many tears, and some without a sigh. For each man kills the thing he loves, yet each man does not die. Wow. And what of their relationship after that? Uh, Since they were all still at Bletchley. Well, there's definitely a strain put on their relationship. I would imagine. But they remained friends until Turing's death in 1954. Joan Clark remained very private in her personal life. The full extent of her work at the war will never be known. She died in 1996. But if you would like to see her talk about her relationship with Alan Turing, I have that video on our website, which is biopicsmostlysuck.com slash imitation game. It's an interview with her from 1992, four years before she died. I'll be tuning in. So how much was taken away from her in the film? So much. So much. Her autonomy. And even just what was taken away from her parents, that they would look at this more around the unseemliness of it. And I just, maybe I don't know enough about the era, but I can only imagine that when you're asked to go serve the government in some way during wartime, that it's assumed that you have something to offer and you go. And that it's okay with your family. And maybe I'm I'm interpreting that incorrectly. Maybe I don't have enough of a, an understanding of the culture at the time, but so many women were spies at that time. I can't imagine that they all did it in defiance of their families. Nothing would have ever gotten done. Yeah. There would have been such an uproar. Um, Maybe that's why the movie presents so few women working at Bletchley Park. Maybe. Because otherwise they'd have to explain why all these women were here. Were there, were there, was there just a nation of parents who were just being defied? <laughs> Wringing their hands. <laughs> worrying about the marriageability of their daughters. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Or just, you know, I, I think they mentioned her her education very briefly in the movie. I can't remember. But that was dismissed. I think they used the crossword puzzle just to move the story forward, but in doing so did such a disservice to her skills and her intellect and her knowledge I don't think it would be difficult to write a short scene different from a bunch of people taking a crossword puzzle mm -hmm. showing that they brought in four people who correctly did the crossword puzzle by gathering an address list from the person who paid them each a hundred pound and hearing from her mentor how incredible she was. I mean, these are things that happen. They wouldn't take any longer than the big fuss of her racing through the subway mm -hmm. and running late into this test and watching everyone sweating the test except for her. Yeah. You know, it 
it overly romanticizes this idea of there's a singular woman who's so smart, which also diminishes other women. This is problematic in cinema in general. Mm -hmm. But this idea that there is a single woman who can be around all these men, this one smart girl who could be around all the big grown men, mm -hmm. and she's got this, you know, man brain instead of a lady brain and can just do all these things. It's insulting and it's demeaning. Yeah, and how to her and all the women who were there at Bletchley. And if Gordon Welchman had been introduced in the film, how progressive would that have been presented that he's saying, hey, this place where only men are working, I have this woman who would be great. Mm -hmm. And were there really only men working there? Uh, in Hut 8, yes. Okay, so in Hut 8. In Hut 8. Yeah. But one person who was not working in Hut 8 was John Cancross, who in the movie turns out to be the Soviet spy. Mm -hmm. In the movie, Turing confesses to Cancross that he is gay. Cancross is found by Turing to be a Soviet spy. Cancross threatens to expose Turing's identity if he is exposed. And what really happened, mm. it, of all the inaccuracies in the film, this one might the, be the most egregious. Mm -mm -mm. Because... What the movie ends up saying is that Alan Turing, a man who played a pivotal role in defeating the Nazis and winning World War II, mm -hmm. hid the identity of a spy, mm -hmm. which would make him a traitor in England. Yes. So they take this man they are presumably celebrating in the film, and they turn him into a traitor. Yes. The fact is that Cancross did work at Bletchley Park. But he did not work with Touring. There were strict separations in place between the different units at Bletchley Park, and there is no evidence at all that the two men ever met. Appalling. Did he confide to people that he is gay? Turing? Yes. His social circle knew. He he didn't take great pains to hide it. He he made passes at men and usually failed, are the accounts. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, he, he did not hide the fact that he was gay from people in a social circle. So this bizarre conceit that the movie has that he was potentially able to be blackmailed and was problematic for the government. Mm -hmm. And that he was, quote, admitting his homosexuality while being interrogated by these two cops. Mm -hmm. Because the cops thought he was a spy initially in the film. Mm -hmm. And then came across he was gay. Mm -hmm. So they ended up charging him for, and I quote from the movie, he's a poofster. Uh, the original charge, and that's the next section we're going to get into. The official charge is gross decency. Gross. Gross indecency, sorry. And what's in the movie is that Alan Turing reports a break-in in his home. Officer Nock interrogates Turing and comes to believe he is a Soviet spy. Because he doesn't want to move forward with an investigation, yes. right? That's correct, yeah. During the interrogation, Nock discovers that Turing is a homosexual, and Turing is charged, tried, and convicted for the crime of gross indecency. Uh, here's what really happened. The British government held that consensual sex between two men was a crime until 1967. The government considered gay men to be a security risk due to the ability to be blackmailed, which is exactly 
what the movie shows Turing's homosexuality being used towards. Yet at the same time, he was openly gay in his circles, so they couldn't show that in the movie because it takes away the entire conceit of the movie. Yes. Because there's no way he could be blackmailed if he's not hiding anything. In the video with Joan Clark, mm-hmm. she says that she was not surprised when Turing said that he was gay. But there were other co-workers who just had no idea. So, But he didn't hide it. Yes, I don't know how liberal he was in showing he was gay, but his friends knew. Okay. So he wasn't someone that could truly be subject to blackmail or extortion. Well, and here's the ironic thing. is the only reason they could really be, be a subject of blackmail is because of a gross indecency law. Mm-hmm. If there were no gross indecency law, there'd be no reason to try to blackmail someone for their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Well, if there was societal disgrace attached, even if there mm-hmm. wasn't a law attached. Yeah. But all the same. But it's, it's the societal expectations and the law that creates the situation for the blackmail, not the person being gay. Yep. That's the ironic part of that, but... No, the movie shows exactly what Britain felt the risk was. That's appalling. Turing is charged and convicted for gross indecency. He's given a choice between serving one year in prison or undergoing chemical castration, which is estrogen treatment. Jesus. And he commits suicide as a result of the experience. What really happened? Alan Turing was in a relationship with a man named Arnold Murray. When an acquaintance of Murray heard about some of the items in Turing's home, he committed the break-in. Turing reported the break-in to the police, but was hesitant to disclose the affair. Which would come out if they arrested the friend of his lover. Mm -hmm. The law did not pursue Turing for being a possible spy. They pursued him for being a gay man from the outset. The court made Turing write a five-page paper where Turing detailed the relationship and that he was a homosexual. The paper was used to charge Turing with gross indecency, a crime with a sentence of a year in jail or chemical castration. And Turing chose the chemical castration so he could continue his work. Turing died on June 7th, 1954, and next to his body was a partially eaten apple. Some people think the apple was laced with cyanide, but Turing was found with four ounces of cyanide in his stomach, which suggests that he drank the cyanide and ate the apple to make the taste more palatable. Turing's mother believed the death was accidental, due to Turing frequently handling cyanide in the course of his work. At the time, he was doing some work on electroplating spoons. And And that involved cyanide? And that involved cyanide. The apple was never tested for cyanide. Well, that's either sloppy or convenient or both. Mm -hmm. The public first came to know Alan Turing from his trial and his suicide. It would be many years before the public learned of his work during World War II. That's appalling. That's absolutely disgusting. As a side note, of course, those who are into computers 
would have known about Alan Turing long before the general public. Sure. And have you ever heard about the rumor about the logo for Apple computers? No. Which has a bite taken. A bite of an apple. And the rumor was it was a reference to Alan Turing. Has Apple substantiated or dispelled that rumor? Apple has dispelled that rumor many times, but let's go to the source, which is Rob Janoff, and he is the man who drew the logo for Apple. Who would know better than he? Exactly. And he says he had no knowledge about Alan Turing at the time he drew the logo. He said the reason for the bite being taken out of the apple mm-hmm. is for perspective. The bite keeps people from thinking the apple is a cherry. <laughs> okay. Which, which makes sense. Because if you're seeing it only a certain size as a logo and it has a bite out of it, your mind's going to go, it's an apple rather than being some other round fruit. Okay. But he says he had no knowledge of Alan Turing at the time he drew the logo. So he wouldn't have made that association. And did he fall apart mentally and emotionally the way it's depicted in the movie? No. The The thought is that he didn't kill himself as a result of the castration. His, his suicide, well, his death, mm-hmm. because there is some question whether or not it was a suicide. His mother doesn't think so. The apple was never tested. He was found with, su- with cyanide in his stomach, though. But this took place 14 months after he was convicted. So he was already... His, his sentence had ended. He was not still subjected to chemical castration? Uh, I think it had done its job by that point because he did grow um, some breasts mm-hmm. as a result of the treatment as well. So he was definitely affected physically by the treatment. But, oh, I would imagine he was traumatized by the treatment. But the question is if he was the character to kill himself over that. Uh, What the movie depicts is, yes, he was. There is some question from his colleagues as to whether that's the case. And like I mentioned, his mother feels that it was an accidental death. Does anyone think it was a murder or an assassination? That has not come up. No. No. That has not come up that he would have been a subject of assassination. Even though he was someone who had these many secrets, supposedly. Well, one would have to know. and. That apparently that knowledge didn't come out of Bletchley Park until the 70s. But the people in Bletchley Park knew it. They, uh, the work he did? Yes. Yes, but remember... Their intelligence agencies knew. Those in Bletchley Park, no one was talking about their work even with each other. No. So there was a code that was being followed, mm-hmm. and one could make the assumption that they were, if they were committed to the cause enough, mm-hmm. they were following that code decades later. And that the government would not feel compelled to kill any of them. Um, I haven't seen anything regarding okay. a conspiracy theory, theory with Turing. So yep. it was all either purposeful or accidental. Mm-hmm. Yep. Self-inflicted. Yep. Oh, and Poor the movie man. shows Joan Clark visiting him during this time period. Mm-hmm. She never did visit him during this time period. Did they stay in touch after Bletchley? Uh, they were in touch uh, until his death. Oh, that's right. You said yep. that. Did she marry and have kids like they show uh, in the movie? She went on to marry. She did have kids and she uh, she had a happy marriage. So they acted like grown-ups is what you're saying. Yes, like grown-ups would. Gro- mm. Grown-ups who care for each other. Grown-ups who care because for each I, other. Because I would doubt that caring they had for each other went away. 
Well, obviously not if he dumped her with a poem and they remained in contact. Yeah. So let's go ahead and give this movie a score for the truth. If we were to grade it on a letter grade of A through F, Don, what would you give the imitation game? I would give it a D. I mean, Bletchley existed. <laughs> the Turing P- existed. Joan Clark existed. A machine of some kind similar to what was portrayed in the movie existed. World War II happened. But those are pretty bare bones. Yeah. I'd be with you on a D there. I I think that it would have been a much more enjoyable film if they presented the people we just talked about. I think it would have been incredible to see that. That that's who I would like to see. I would like to see Deniston as a fan of Turing. I would like to see Turing joking with his colleagues and accomplishing incredible things. This mm-hmm. whole idea that you have to be some tortured genius or you have to be this oddball who's not understood or appreciated until you produce something mm-hmm. is just ridiculous. It's or just even a government who says, yes, we're going to give you money for this because this is our only shot mm-hmm. at possibly winning this war. And the time pressures that are put on there are put on there in the context of the government needing things to be fast to avoid more casualties in a lengthier war and not just because they're not happy with it yeah. and-, and racing in and destroying a machine. And I would love to have seen a relationship that is presented as love, but not in the context in which it's always presented in film. I am sure there are many more couples that were in the position that Alan Turing and Joan Clark were in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, later on, women became known as beards when they were with a gay man. Yes. But but that was... And that's to reference hiding of the person's uh, being gay anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think this is one of those sorts of things that makes a very neat package for Hollywood. Yeah. And they tend to like that. And relationships are much more complex and complicated, romantic and platonic relationships, same sex, opposite sex. The, anything that's not neat mm-hmm. and doesn't fit into a trope doesn't seem to get much attention other than in small indie films. Yeah. So you would then agree with journalist Christian Carroll, who we talked about earlier, who said that Turing's life was made to be multiplex friendly. Yes. And that should be taken by everyone who produced and directed this film. As a grave insult that it is. Yeah, I, I think Turing and Clark and the other people who were presented here deserved so much better in a depiction of their lives. Absolutely. And their work. Absolutely. And their work. All right, Don. Thank you for joining me. Sure thing. Thank you. Now is the time when we fact check ourselves. I can't possibly presume to have every answer for every question. That comes up during our conversations, and sometimes our guests will ask me to do some extra research, and I will share that information here. For instance, Dawn asked me what the 1942 100-pound prize money would be in 2020 pounds. If that prize were given for completing a crossword puzzle in under 12 minutes today, 
that winner would bring in a cool 4,747 pounds. That would buy a lot of pencils. Don had asked about Joan Clark and if she married or had children after Alan Turing broke off their engagement in 1941. Clark was a very private person, and a neighbor said that she did not talk about her personal background and that she was awkward in social circles. It was known that she loved botany, chess, and knitting. In 1947, Clark met Lieutenant Colonel John Kenneth Ronald Murray, a retired army officer who had served in India. Clark and Murray were married on July 26, 1952, at Chichester Cathedral. Murray died in 1986, and Clark died 10 years later. I should note that I was mistaken in our conversation when I said they had a couple kids. They had no children. That wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere, but not Spreaker. Don't look for us on Spreaker. You can find all of the sources we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash imitation game. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos and pictures. As mentioned in the discussion, I have a video of Joan Clark talking about her relationship with Alan Turing. I also have a video of one of the women from Bletchley Park who operated the bomb machine, and she describes how it works. And lastly, you can go to the website and download a copy of the crossword puzzle from 1942 and see if you would have won a hundred pound prize money. I want to thank Dawn for talking about the imitation game. If you like her being on the show as much as I did, go do some good in the social justice arena so no one has to be treated like Alan Turing was. How are we doing on this project? Go like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle of at MostlySuck or send us your feedback through our website, iopixmostlysuck.com and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode. And we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.